Good morning, everybody. Why don't we pray together before we open God's word? Father, forgive us for taking for granted the fact that you are a God who speaks. Forgive us for taking for granted the fact that you speak powerfully and sufficiently in your word. And so I pray that you will help us to have ears to hear, minds to learn, hearts eager to obey, for you are good and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start this morning by saying happy Father's Day to my fellow fathers in the room. And as I look across the room and see all of you dads, I can tell you at least one thing for certain. You all have serious problems. The laughter of your wives and children affirm such a statement, and so do I, right? Because life under the sun is wrought with all kinds of issues, internal and external, obstacles and threats, emotional and physical problems everywhere. And uh, they say, whoever they are, that about 90% of solving a problem is identifying the right one. And that would make sense in wisdom. We have to know what we're dealing with. And, and, and this idea got me thinking about a TV show that my wife and oldest son love to watch. It's called The Incredible Dr. Pole. Have you seen this show? You've seen this show. This is a terrible show. It's awful. And, and it's not Dr. Pole's fault, to be fair. He seems like a really good guy with a really solid set of, of values but listen, the, the truth of the matter is, I just do not want to come home after a long day and witness the bloody intricacies of a live calf birth in my living room. I just don't want to see it. No necrotic bovine tissue for me this Father's Day, let me tell you. But I have to tell you, I picked up a new appreciation for Dr. Pohl this week. He is an excellent, excellent problem solver. Like any good physician, he carefully assesses his patients. He takes the proper samples. And he, he even, if he has to, investigates at the microbiological level. He's looking for the problem behind the problem. You know, we got all kinds of problems. But are you sure that the problem in front of you is actually your biggest problem? Have you made the right kind of assessment? Are you seeing it clearly? Or is there maybe another problem behind the problem? We ask these questions as we return together to the book of 1 Samuel, where we find the people of God facing a giant problem, quite, quite literally. But is it their biggest one? Why don't we turn there now and find out together. 1 Samuel chapter 17, you'll find it on page 239 of your pew Bibles if you're using one of those. 1 Samuel 17, and we approach one of the most well-known and beloved stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. And as you turn to 1 Samuel 17, let me just offer a quick pastoral exhortation and reminder uh, about the danger of a passage that is so familiar, right? Because we bring all of our presuppositions to a text like this. And, and as we do every week, the goal is not to come and stand over the Bible with everything that we know about it, but rather to stand under the Scripture, to see it afresh, to be shaped by it and mastered 
by it. 1 Samuel 17. We already heard the first part of the narrative read, and right out of the gates, we see a formidable enemy to the people of God. A formidable enemy. Verse 1, the Philistines have gathered for battle. They have, they have moved in and, and encroached on Israel's territory, and they are ready to throw it down. And then verse 4 shows us just how bad this is. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. And this is one big dude. This is a bulging, beastly kind of a man. And he's, he's totally teched out with all the latest battle gear. This, this bronze helmet, huge javelin, an impenetrable shield. He's even got bronze covering his legs, which if you've ever been kicked in the shin by your three-year-old, you know just how important it is to have your shins covered. And so this guy is covered top to bottom. And uh, the only thing more formidable than Goliath's impressive stature is, is his indignant smack talk. Verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is a lot of detail for a narrative, pretty unique. And actually, all this intricate detail is given to help us to feel just how formidable an opponent this is. Who could possibly face this champion? Well, one logical choice would be Saul, right? After all, wasn't it the king's duty to fight the battles of the people? You remember one of the reasons they listed back in chapter 8 that they wanted a king was so that they could parade him out to fight their battles for them. You might remember later in chapters 9 and 10 also, Saul had another thing going for him. He was described as tall and dark and handsome. He was a head above the rest in all of Israel. Ah, but, but in the face of this enemy, <laughs> Saul did not quite measure up. And so the response is a crippling fear and dismay among the people. And we ought to sink into the utter hopelessness of that for a minute. We have, in one sense, the disadvantage of knowing the outcome of the story. But at this point, against this formidable enemy, victory is impossible. And then, quite suddenly, the narrator changes scenes for us. We go off to the farm for a minute. Now David, verse 12, was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. And so we move from the formidable enemy to an uh, unimpressive champion. Surprising, unlikely, and, and unimpressive. We flash to the farm, and here we have little Dave. Little Dave from Bethlehem. Look at, look at the way he tends the sheep. He's, he's so cute. I mean, this is, this is Jesse's youngest boy. And, and he's just so cute, I just want to pinch his cheeks and just kind of tussle his hair a little bit. Little Dave from Bethlehem. And then one morning, uh, little Dave gets a, a call and a promotion. But it's from shepherd boy to errand boy. Not very impressive. His dad tells him he's got to deliver snacks to his brothers over in the Valley of Allah. He receives the job well, though, and, and unaware of the giant problem, little Dave from Bethlehem rushes to the ranks to go see his brothers. 
Surely eager to hear the, the sound of great victory, the sound of the people of God routing their enemies. But he hears something else. He hears only the ongoing taunts and blasphemy of this incredible hulk from Gath. I think it's pretty interesting uh, at this point, at the end of verse 23, the narrator makes it a point to tell us one key difference. After 40 days of this, round after round of mockery, something is different. The end of verse 23, and David heard him. But what, I mean, this is this little Dave, this is Jesse's kid. What difference does that make? This is where I'd like to pick up the narrative and read a bit more. Beginning in verse 24, we're going to bite off a, a chunk of this text here. So beginning in verse 24, we read together that all the men of Israel, when uh, they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel. And the king will, will enrich the man who kills him and with great riches and, and will give him his daughter and Make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you, you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, uh, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear, and it took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So, the journey of the unimpressive champion continues, right? And you will notice that in this section of our text, that all of David's logical weaknesses, all of his unimpressive features are laid bare. We can thank his big brother and, and the king for that. First, verse 28, we see that Eliab 
is losing his mind on his younger brother. He is ticked. He says, why have you come down here, little Dave? You know, who, who's tending the, the couple of sheep that you look after while you're here screwing around on the battlefield? I know what you're here to do. You are just here to selfishly catch a glimpse of some of the action. Contempt. Scorn. And it doesn't get that much better with the king. After he hears David's crazy proposal to fight Goliath, Saul, oh so reasonably, you could, you could almost hear him say, Oh, Dave. Dave, you know I like you, little Dave. I, 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 you're a glass half full kind of guy. And, and I can appreciate that kind of optimism. In fact, it, it reminds me of me a little bit when I was your age. I like the spunk. I really like it. But listen, you're just a kid. You're not equipped for this fight. Have you seen this guy? This is a suicide mission. And even after David gains this small measure of consent, Saul is still not convinced. So much so that in verse 38, he tries to, to give him some form of advantage, his, his armor and his weapons. David, if you insist on this kamikaze mission, let me just tell you, you, you at least need to take a sword. At least take some, take some form of advantage here. Zero support from his compatriots. Zero confidence from the king. Zero chance of winning. Zero. And I think it's fair and helpful for us to acknowledge that from an external perspective, this is not an unreasonable assessment. Zero chance. Well, that's only one way of looking at it. And that's actually one of the, the thrusts of this text, is it's meant to show us how, how everybody, Goliath, the army, the king, everybody is looking at this from a certain vantage point. Everybody except David. So I wonder if we might go back through that, that same scene, but look at it from a very different vantage point. The vantage point of David himself. Looping back to verse 26, you know, these are, these are actually the first recorded words of David in the entire Bible. And after he confirms this kind of sad motivation that Saul has given up to his troops, David says, for, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Finally! Finally, somebody is asking the right question here. David says, don't you see? The problem here, the, the issue at stake here is not the strength of this behemoth. The issue at stake here is the honor and the renown and the name of our God. David's the first one in the entire narrative to show concern for the right problem. The glory of wonder if the same could be said of us. We have a lot of things that preoccupy our minds and time in a given day. Plenty of things at stake and on the line might be the responsibility of caring for a loved one or for a child. Might be our volunteer work, our, our charity work, or our personal health, or perhaps our, our many social commitments, our careers, tons of stuff. Many of them good in their nature. But in the midst of all of that, I wonder where the priority of the name and honor of God falls. It's 
just kind of one of many things we need to do, or is it of priority to us to actively be thinking about how this decision or this next conversation or this next relational interaction will affect the way that the world sees and looks upon the God that we claim to serve? We understand this. I mean, reputations are important to us, understandably so. We oftentimes work really hard to maintain a good relationship with our friends, with our community, right? Our name is, is literally on the line. How much more than should we show concern for God's reputation, for his glory? After all, his, his is actually the one worth celebrating, worth displaying for the world. These are the kind of questions that David is asking. How to bring the name and the glory of God to bear. And, and man, does this put this, this whole conversation about Goliath into a whole new light? He sees it differently. But it's not the only thing he sees differently. And this is very important. Did you catch the, the little descriptor of God at the end of verse 26? David calls him the living God. The living God. He says, brothers... Ought this not to make a difference that we are servants of the living God? Not some deaf, mute, false idol. He is the one true God, the covenant-keeping God, the living God. This ought to make a difference. This big, big vision for God continues to expand as we trace down in his conversation with Saul, right? Because he gives the king a little history lesson on the faithfulness of God power of God. And then in verse 37, he, he makes this incredible declaration. Look at it again. The Lord Yahweh, David uses God's covenant name, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That, that is a vastly different perspective than everybody else. Why is it so different? Why? The answer is because David is the only one in the narrative who's actually thinking theologically about the problem. In other words, David not only sees Goliath differently than everybody else, he sees God differently than everybody else. And in so doing, he puts his finger right on the pulse of the bigger problem. He's saying, this is not just a giant problem. This is not just a Goliath problem. This is a theological problem. It always is. You know, sometimes I will hear or be asked things like, you know, you guys at Old North are, are talking an awful lot about theology. I mean, what's, what's the deal with, with theology? I mean, right, I, I would love something, anything, just a little more practical. Right? It's Father's Day after all. I mean, how to be a better dad would be great. Or, or, or how to find contentment in my job. This kind of thing. What I love about the Bible is the way that it exposes the problem behind the problem. Of course we're concerned about godly parenting and work and, and, and all the rest. But we mustn't miss that the heart of the issue is how we think about God. Like, uh, why, why as a Christian would I attempt to parent my child before thinking deeply about the fatherhood of God? 
or the providential care of God for his people or the biblical framework for the family? Why would I attempt to find some meaning in my work without first thinking deeply about my identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and how from that identity work can actually be expression of worship and obedience to Christ? The way we think about God makes all the difference. Theology really does matter. And that's what we're seeing here from David. He's, he's got the right perspective, the right vantage point of God. We might even identify it as a perspective of faith. And this is what allows David to see victory when everybody else sees defeat. Confidently, he says, Yahweh will deliver me. That is a statement of faith. And with that, we can connect the dots between this impossible victory and what it means to really trust in the Lord. Namely, that, that the victory of God is seen from the vantage point of faith. The victory of God is seen from the vantage point of faith. David's thinking theologically about the problem. He sees the problem behind the problem. And this vantage point of faith, seeing God clearly, trusting him for deliverance, changed everything. Everybody else, everybody looks at Goliath and says, he's so big, we can't win. David looks at him, same guy, he's so big, I can't miss. <laughs> the victory of God really is seen from the vantage point of faith. Not, of course, in his own strength or his own skill in battle. We saw that earlier about David. Listen, externally, he was a skinny, runt farmer's kid. Jesse's youngest. But he looked in faith to the Lord for deliverance. Because the victory of God is seen from the vantage point of faith. This should, this should bring our minds back to um, Hannah, Samuel's mom, you might remember. 1 Samuel 2, she has this remarkable song, this remarkable prayer. Listen to these words. Years before... She says, the Lord will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. He, meaning God, will give strength to his king and exalt the horn or the strength of his anointed. Nobody else in the narrative knows what we knew from lastly, which is that the spirit of God had come upon David he had anointed David as the true king. And so here we have this word from Hannah back in chapter 2 being played out. And, and that moves us to the conclusion of this narrative from that different and important vantage point to a divine victory. A divine victory. Time permits us from reading in detail every verse, the rest of the chapter. But in summary, David approaches Goliath and we. No armor, no advanced weaponry. And Goliath, to nobody's surprise, is not very impressed. He hurls a few more insults, a few more blasphemous curses, even invoking the name of his puny false gods. And David rebuts with more good theology and more faith-filled speech. We've got to look at verse 45. David says, listen, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the 
God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head and give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly might know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. Well, that about sums it up, doesn't it? The battle is the Lord's. It's likely you know how things finish from here. David cues up a stone into his sling and he fires a single stone and fells Goliath. Verse 50 is certainly worth mentioning. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. You'd think that the author was maybe trying to make a point about how God uses the unlikely and weak things of the world to shame the strong. No sword for little Dave. No spear, no shield, no armor. So much so he actually had to borrow Goliath's sword to finish the job. The contrast between these two champions could not be greater, and yet God provides victory through the weakness of his anointed king. Something for us to remember, you know, as we think about how little we view our weaknesses. How we, you know, can have a tendency to just bury that part of our life as, as far down into the, the dark corner as possible. You know, the, the shameful stuff about us, the, the embarrassing stuff about our lives. But our weaknesses, those things that seem so useless to us are actually the backdrop upon which the power of God shines the brightest. Because then the glory, the victory, is His alone. And this great victory is best seen from the vantage point of faith. Back in the early 20s, there was a group of naval vessels that went onto a training exercise. It was led by a vessel called the USS Delphi and captains by Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter. Now, Hunter was known as an experienced navigator. He taught at the Naval Academy. He was known for his skill and for his self-confidence. He knew he was good. In fact, people would often say about him that he had kind of this magic infallibility on the sea. He could always guide his ship to the right place. So they're making their way down the California coast, and, and all of a sudden, this dense, thick fog comes over them. So thick that Hunter struggled to find any kind of accurate read or evaluation of his location. But, in his self-confidence, decided to press forward with the training exercise. And then suddenly, while they were traveling at about 20 knots, the Delphi smashed broadside into the rocky shoreline of what's called the Devil's Jaw. The remaining vessels, one after another, followed suit. And tragically, 22 men died that day. Hunter's faith, you see, in himself was, was tragically, tragically misplaced. And I share that with you because I, I think one of the temptations of this passage in particular is to make it about the courage of David. You know, David had courage. Man, did he have courage. And, and maybe that means I can have courage. Yeah, 
Yeah, I can have courage. I can, I can do it. I can be a champion, in fact, just like David was a champion. And yet the truth is, this passage is not about the courage of David. This passage is not a step-by-step guide in how we can become a champion. Because at the end of the day, we share much more in common with the fearful soldiers than we do the emboldened champion. My courage fails, and so does yours. My aim is terrible, and so is yours. You say, well, fine. Well, that's all well and good, but what do we, what do, we do about Goliath? Right? He's still standing there, taunting, mocking, blaspheming. He's still there. What are we, we going to do about him? Well, that's the right question. And actually, the problem is much worse than you think because Goliath, listen, Goliath represents much more than that promotion you're hoping for. Much more than that lesson you're trying to teach your child. Much more than the five pounds you're hoping to shave off before you hit the beach this summer. Israel's problem our problem is much, much bigger than that. Theologian Arthur Pink points out that Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and man, the devil, seeking to terrify and bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord. We might add to Pink's assessment the terrifying enemies of of sin and death, all of which stand over us like an unholy trinity, mocking blaspheming. What can you possibly do with us? Death is coming. You cannot stop it. Sin is dominating. You cannot... What what could you possibly do against us? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. This is actually where the story of David and Goliath leaves us. See, this passage is not about how easily you and I can become a champion. It's about how badly we need one. And God, rich, abundant in kindness, has provided a champion. Another champion in David's line, sent by God, anointed by God, to fight not for himself, but on behalf of his people, Another champion who, by external standards, was also quite unimpressive. One who was doubted and even scorned. You know, isn't this, isn't this Joseph's kid? Isn't this the carpenter's son? What is he doing? Trying to teach us something or show us something. I mean, you all know this. What good can come out of Nazareth? Another champion who never wielded sword or spear against the enemies of God. No, no, this this champion carried only an object of weakness, a cross, which he carried to his own death. And then, three days later, revealed who he really was. And in his powerful resurrection and sacrificial death, Jesus of Nazareth provided the greatest victory that the people of God would ever know. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, which says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, the power of sin and the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is God's greatest and ultimate champion. And only he can provide the victory from these, our greatest of enemies. And he does. I mean, that, that should do something for us. Think about it. The greatest enemies of your life, the ones who are really capable of wiping you out in an eternal fashion, those enemies of sin and death and Satan are defeated by the Lord Jesus. This means, think about this, the greatest threat to your life. Nobody likes to feel threatened by anything, but the greatest threats to your life are already mitigated. If you're a Christian, already defeated. And, and, and this is something we might remember the next time that we feel paralyzed by fear or anxiety or we feel threatened by some unknown or uncertain circumstance. Jesus has won. It certainly isn't meant to minimize so many of the presenting challenges and problems that we face, but it does put them in the proper perspective. It reminds us that we walk in weakness. And as we walk in weakness, we walk under the great care and protection of God's greatest champion. A verse in the new song that we introduced earlier says, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold. My shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's a statement of faith, folks. It's because Jesus, as the unique resurrected Son of God, is the only proper object of our faith. And we connect into those glorious benefits by faith. Colossians 2, right? You were raised with Him through faith. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him. And God disarmed the rulers and authorities. I love this. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. This is the great hope of the Christian. The victory has been won. It belongs to God and to his champion, the Lord Jesus. And we have the joy and the gift of sharing that victory by faith, by trusting Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, by repenting of our sins and, and turning to him. And if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, this is the glorious gift that God holds out to you even today. And so I commend Christ to you and to the life that he provides, a life beyond threat from our greatest of enemies because he's won. So let's trust him for that victory. Let's keep looking to him in faith because the victory of God in Christ is seen from the vantage point of faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. Forgive us for our pride and our arrogance and ever thinking that we could offer you something in this regard. For you have given it all. And Christ is sufficient. We can 
confess it. We believe it when sin is creeping at our door, when temptation knocks. I pray that you will help us to believe, to remember your goodness and faithfulness, and to continue entrusting ourselves to the good shepherd of our soul, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for providing victory to those who could earn on their own nothing but defeat, who deserve nothing but punishment. Thank you for the glory of the gospel, which places the death and the punishment upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. He really is worthy of our trust. And I pray that as we look to him, we would see the victory that he richly provides for us.